Hi, I'm Jess and I'm the oldest. Oi, I'm the oldest. I'm Shtee, I'm the dad and this is actually my podcast. And I'm Tommy, I'm the youngest. Welcome to the podcast. At the heart of hearts, we're all very creative. I've had a very interesting life. You've travelled all over the world. I remember being... Oh, interesting. This is not how I remember the story story. story, story. Pints are not a good measure for filling Jacobs as fuel. <laughs> <laughs> Gracious me, it's episode 13! And guess what? It's not unlucky. This is a very lucky episode. Why, you ask? Well, you'll just have to wait and find out. <laughs> oh, is that the start? <laughs> that's, that's the start, that's the start yeah. of our that's, intro. But, that's uh, the let's, cue. But now, we'll, but now we'll hand over. So, Stevie, what uh, stories have you got for us today? Oh, plenty of stories. But um, so far, for those who are listening for the first time in this podcast, my life has been covered or has covered up today. Being born in Surrey, best paper boy in Surrey, don't forget that one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Travelling to Aberdeen to study forestry. Nipping to Africa for a couple of years. And the last episode, meeting the strongest link and getting engaged to my treasured wife, partner and friend of 38 years now, aka Mutz. What? We call her Mutz to protect the innocent. Um, But yeah, so that's so far. Really Her real name is absolutely unpublishable. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very. Well, offends the most hardy of ears. <laughs> anyway, that's that's what we've covered so far. But before I go on on the the never ending trail of exciting things that have happened, and bear in mind, I have said this is where my life gets even more exciting in the future. Uh, we usually talk about something else in the family before I get on to that. So I've talked about my grandparents and Jay, I just remembered, and Tommy, I just remembered that uh, this last weekend was the anniversary of 10K for Tom Clark. And I thought since you organised it, Jay, you might be able to just talk about it for a bit because it was about our family. Well, about me, actually. Website, I know. <laughs> it's very much in the name. <laughs> I'll, I'll rebrand it as 10K for Jay Clark. <laughs> <laughs> 10k for for Clark. <laughs> Doesn't have quite the same ring to it somehow, does it? No. So where did where, the idea come from originally? It came from Tommy because every year Tommy was doing a run to celebrate being a certain amount of years cancer free. And I think you started on your fifth year, is that right? The one I remember was eight because yeah. I did eight 5k's and then nine I did nine miles. So it might only have been... Maybe it was only two. Unless I did organised runs or something. Not sure. Anyway, yeah. I, I sort of knew that Tommy was doing um, runs that coincided with the... They had a link to the number of years in which he'd been cancer-free. And I, particularly the nine-mile one, I remember thinking, nine... I cannot run nine miles. That is so <laughs> impressive. And then also thinking, well, that's, that's kind of, you know, nine years is quite a thing, but like ten years, that's that feels a bit like a landmark. And then... It was almost certainly Sam, because Sam is the bringer of many great ideas, um, <laughs> who we were sort of talking about it. And I think he, I think he was the one that came up with the, with the name 10K for Tom Clark. Mm. And we were talking about running 10 kilometres, because that seems like a pretty kind of epic distance and kind of a nice sort of a nice achievement as well. And, then, and manageable by quite a lot of people. Yeah, sort of. It's mm. like a challenge, but it's not kind of un, un, an unachievable uh, challenge. Um, and then, yeah, I think it was Sam who sort of, you know, offered the idea that that 10K could also be £10,000. And suddenly it was this thing <sighs> of just going, 
that just seems like such a kind of cool thing to try and do, raise £10,000 to celebrate Tommy being 10 years cancer-free while we all run 10 kilometres, 10,000 miles. <laughs> and uh, and so so we sort of, we started it. And I, I think originally I was like, oh, it'll just be a, a group of, you know, some mates kind of running around the park. But then... But then the more we talked about raising £10,000, the more it became clear that it had to be something a bit more um, epic yeah, because, because you're not, not going to raise £10,000, <laughs> you know, just from kind of friends and family being like, uh, I'm just going to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I was sort of... I was looking at different places and, and I can't remember why I sort of cottoned on to Hyde Park, but I think it was because it was sort of central London. It was a big park and you could map out... It was also quite flat as well and you could map out a 10k route relatively easily. It sort of... There was quite a nice little loop and then a little extra bit and it was... That was 10k. Um, and I emailed them to see if we could do that. And I think at the time I was still sort of picturing it as like, you know, maybe 10 of us would go for a little run around the park. And then I ended up having a meeting with the park, um, I guess the people that kind of managed the park. And that was the point where I was like, this is very official. I hadn't quite, <laughs> hadn't quite clocked that it was so official. Um, I mean, I, I'm not sure I'd have thought of asking for permission, really. I, just, I think I'm, I might have been in danger of just doing it. So that was, but it was really good you did because it sort of gathered momentum mm. after that. Yeah, I'm, I can't remember exactly why or what it was that made me think about asking for permission because obviously you can just go for a run and no one's going to stop you but it was I think it was it was it was sort of tying in with this idea of like to be able to raise that much money we needed to get a lot of people to do this and the more kind of official it became the more people I think would buy into it um Mm. and which totally worked didn't it yeah we got we got about 35 people running and they were people from all over the place you know like such a weird bunch I mean not weird I mean just unusual bunch from different parts of life You'd never expect to gather that group of people together in one place. Really. Yeah, totally eclectic and, and just like people sort of dripping in from all different areas of, of life. And, <laughs> dripping in. <laughs> and I think we, we started in it and we kind of got to about, I think we got to about £4,000 kind of without too much sort of needing to really, you know, go out there and, and like ask for money. And I think because there were so many people involved, you know that doesn't take that doesn't take you much and then when you get to that four thousand you think well we can get to five thousand because you can sort of start saying you know oh we're really close we're really close and get a bit more money but then then the money just kept coming <laughs> and and it was like it was really wild um and when we had a we talked to just giving about it who was the pe- they were the people that we were doing the fundraising through and um i think we had an article in the leamington observer um about ah. it and uh yeah i'd forgotten that i think by the by the day the the day of the race we were on about nine thousand pounds um which i just couldn't i couldn't it's believe bananas, it isn't it yeah <laughs> it's so much money and in the end you did actually make it i do believe yeah because yeah. it's, yeah. it's all the gift aid because it annoyingly on just giving it doesn't include the gift aid in the total i guess because it's like it comes at another time and it's not necessarily guaranteed but we absolutely smashed it with gift aid included i think with gift aid included it was more like eleven thousand pounds which is just it's so wild i i think it was one of those ideas that you start and you sort of go this sounds good and this is a good thing to aim for and then suddenly it starts happening and and sort of (laughs) actually happening and you're like wow I, i remember so clearly when you called me to say is it okay if I do this? Because <laughs> you'd like had the idea 
And I think we're just a bit like, I think this is a good idea, but I don't know. I haven't actually, because I think you, you know, mulled it over and put some thought in it, into it before um, bringing it to me. And it, it was while I was on a ski season. So I was in the French Alps feeling quite isolated from, I don't know, everybody a little bit, not in a sad way. I was having an amazing time, but, you know, just separate. And then suddenly there was this plan in May and I was coming back in like April and I was, it was like just the most fun to come back and see all those people and like do this massive run and raise all this money. And it was just the most heartwarming thing. So thanks Jay. Oh, you're so welcome. And all the money, all the money went to cancer, melon cancer relief. I believe. Yes. Mm. Not me as the name (laughs) might suggest. Mm. No, it's, I, it's up there with one of my greatest achievements, managing to be part of making that happen. But, you know, it's it's a very good example of, of a group of people making things happen because, mm. like, you know, I did a lot of the organising, but we wouldn't have done it if it wasn't for everybody else, like, just getting involved and getting excited by the idea. Mm. And I, I actually rewatched the video that we made um, to oh, go yeah. with it, if you remember that. Which the trailer video. It's just... It's so funny, and again, you just see so many different people, and you're like, "Whoa, that person was there, and that person was yeah. there." Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah, what I really like is people still. It's it's like, it wasn't just a big thing for us; it was like a big thing for everybody who was involved with it. I know there were yeah. a lot of people who were first time runners or first time ten kers. Um, yeah, loads of people did it, and... did it for the first time, and they, they, it was my first ten k, and I was so nervous about was it. it? Yeah, because when we it was on the day, and suddenly I was like, "Hang on, this is a, this is all happening," and then B, I also <laughs> actually just actually have to run this race. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and we had a big group of um, of stewards as well because the the course was kind of quite straightforward, but also you just need some people standing on various corners to make sure that the runners don't have to think about anything and can just be gently pointed in the right direction. And it was there, and there was a WhatsApp group that all the stewards were added to, um, which was just so funny because they were they were in charge of sort of making sure that everyone knew like where the where the race was at, and like I keep calling it a race, it wasn't a race, but like where the run was at and where the last runner was at, and just making sure that we kind of knew like what was happening and it's just it's so funny because I think somebody had my phone while I was running and so oh. I went back and just had a look at the messages and it's just it's just so funny I'm going number 32's gone past nope still waiting for 16 Where, where's 24 <laughs> but the, and also the good thing was like because I can't remember at what point we thought oh let's make um name badges with numbers on and that was partly about um just keeping track of of the people that were running but the great thing is that people in the park just sort of shout your name because you've got it pinned to yeah. you and you're and you're sort of like struggling along and someone will go go on jess and you're like thank you stranger okay. <laughs> <laughs> on that i remember sam poor old sam who was uh sounds like he was so inciting in the whole thing but was then had had a medical problem that meant that he couldn't actually run on the day uh having oh, been a keen right. runner before and so he ended up being one of the stewards and i remember he was stationed next to the cafe in hyde park so lots of people around Sam being Sam was like screaming everybody's names <laughs> and there was quite a long straight bit before the cafe so he would see you coming and he'd be like come on yes you can do it and there'd be this whole cafe of people trying to have like a nice cup of tea and they're just he getting dragged into the he was just the most enthusiastic the... steward yeah. it was amazing it was yeah. just the best the best thing for when you're like yeah tired and running and needing a bit of a boost and you're just like thanks Sam 
I was also well chuffed with the uh, with the medals um, at the end because yeah. Yeah. that was quite it was quite a last minute decision. But I suddenly was like, oh, it's now got this this thing has become so official and has become such a real like a quite a big deal in my in my mind anyway. And I was like, at every organised run, you get a medal at the end, and mm. that's kind of the thing. Um, and then, yeah, managed to find somewhere that did these medals for not too much of an astronomical cost. And so we've got these little... They're, they're like square, aren't they? And they say 10K mm-hmm. for Tom Clark on them. Yeah. It's very look, cool. They look just as good, if not better, than other medals I've had in races. So very nice touch. Oh, yeah. Such a such a good little uh, thing. And in fact, uh, just working out on the fingers of both hands and another hand that's here um, by my side, uh, if if it's... <laughs> The fifth anniversary of that being the tenth anniversary of being cancer free. That means cancer free for fifteen years. Woo, woo, woo. Woo, 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 woo. Was it five I, years? I, is that, do we know that that is true? Yeah, yeah. it was. That. It was five years. Mm. Mm. Amazing. That is why Facebook alerted me. I think so. Just in case. I worry about what uh, we need to do in five years' time. <laughs> yeah. No, in eleven years' time, we need to do a marathon. Oh. We'll worry yeah. about that when the time comes. Okay. Well, dear listener, that is another little episode from the Pod Clark family that isn't to do with my life particularly. So, uh, <laughs> should we wrap it up there? No. Well, it was that <laughs> no, we no, could, no, no, no. and we wouldn't be lost. But um, you might remember picking up from episode twelve that I just got back from the Philippines uh, with Mutz, where we had got engaged, and um, really yes. there was no clear idea of what might happen next um but on arrival back i found a letter that had been posted while i was away and it was from martin who was the director of the organization do you remember back in episode all seven or eight or something i was talking about the um vietnamese orphans that came over Mm. on an airlift um well that organization had morphed from helping vietnamese orphans to working in Thailand, Cambodia, and then they'd just started a new operation in eastern Sudan where there was a big refugee crisis. This is um, 1984, end of, beginning of 85. And Martin, who ran that organisation now, um, was looking for somebody, uh, wait for it, to go and set up, only go and set up a refugee programme in Sudan. And for, Small fry. Well, they, they got into the barrel started emptying it, started <laughs> scraping around. <laughs> and eventually they found uh, my name came up. And uh, anyway, it, they were asking if I could go out. I mean, they knew that I hadn't really got a lot of experience. They did know I'd been to Africa and uh, had a bit of experience of doing things uh, sort of on my own and making things happen. So uh, the idea was to, to go out to Sudan, scope out what projects were needed and make some recommendations. And so... You just picture it, we just got back all excited, full of the buzz of um, having got engaged. And then I got on a plane and went. So I, you'd have to talk to Mats about how she felt about that. But <laughs> I think probably it was an opportunity um, not to be missed. And it's another one of those things that charted the progress of the next um, couple of decades, I suppose, really for me. But how do you set up a refugee programme? What do you do? Where do you start? So in my head... I imagined you had to sort of be on places on time and write letters and things. So I did two things before I went. I bought a watch and um, I went to Argos and bought a watch 
And then I packed into a suitcase a sort of mobile office. So I sort of got a pencil and sucked it for quite a long time and wrote a list. And I took a <laughs> stapler and um, a hole punch and a ream of paper and rubber, pencils, you know, everything I could think of for writing letters. And um, of course, no computers in those days, um, not, not personal computers anyway. And off I went with this, uh, this suitcase and my watch. And I got on a plane of Sudan Airways, which became a very great friend. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that uh, a bit later on. But then I arrived in Khartoum. Now, Khartoum is the capital of Sudan. And it's, um, it's an interesting place. I, I mean, things about Khartoum are is that it's very dusty for a start. Hardly ever rains. In fact, some years it doesn't mm. rain ever. It doesn't ever rain. Dusty as um, in sandy or like yes, dusty some other how? Dusty as in sandy. And you know, recently, certainly here in France and probably where oh, you yeah. were, all the cars got covered in a sort of Sahara dust, they called it, which is yeah. blown out. That, that is very much what it was like um, in, in Khartoum. And, and sometimes you'd have a dust storm that, that blew up from almost nowhere. And um, uh, so it's very dusty. Uh, out and about on the streets, what you mostly saw were men in long white flowing robes. Um, and I always used to think, how on earth do they keep their robes so crystal pristine and white in in you know places with loads, of, loads of dust and i i don't know the mm. answer to that question but mostly you didn't see any women on the streets um quite a lot of old battered up cars um the guest house i was staying in had uh to my absolute delight parked in its courtyard a morris minor now we've mm. talked about morris minors before mm. uh, and various morris minors that i'd had um and because before leaving for sudan one of the things I've been doing with my friend Andrew was replacing the back wings on our own Morris Minor. We'd spent ages and ages um, unscrewing the bolts, which were all rusted to pieces um, on the one at, at home. And it had taken forever and it had all come off in flakes of metal had broken off, bits of rust. It was, it was terrible. And then we had to weld it and put on new wings and so on. And I knew that this car in the courtyard there in Khartoum was, um, was at, at, at least... Uh, 35 years old from the model it was and so I was keen to see what the wings were like because I'd just been spent a week and a half underneath the back wings of my own car so anyway when nobody's looking I went and had a look under the back wings and um, the bolts were like they'd been assembled yesterday and <laughs> they were there was still paint on the bolts that were holding the wing on because it doesn't rain in cartoon so they don't put salt oh. down it never freezes there's no ice so the cars don't rot. So, hmm. um, so that was one. And then, as if that wasn't exciting enough, a bit later on that week, I noticed a Morris mine driving along the road and it had a big thing on the top of the roof saying driving school um, in Arabic and English. And then as, I, as it went by, I looked and to my absolute astonishment, and if I hadn't seen it, I wouldn't believe it. <laughs> it had two steering wheels. It was a dual control car. Mm. But it didn't have only a two clutches and pedals and accelerators. It had two steering wheels. Oh, two mm. steering wheels. I've just realised that that's, yeah. How can you, you imagine how you to drive? Yeah. What if one person steers one way and the other does the other? But it like, says the instructor can correct a, a prevent an accident. But can you imagine a tug of war if, um, yeah. anyway. I guess, that, yeah, I guess they just turn in, yeah. 
they're, they're directly linked, so it's whoever's strongest wins, basically. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> I was imagining they both turned and somehow equaled each other out or something. So if one turned left and one turned right, you just kept going straight. <laughs> but actually, it's, yeah, tug of war. But I, I mean, I, I, I've never seen that anywhere else. I don't know if it, if it was a, just a unique example. Um, Khartoum is where the two Niles, the Blue Nile and the White Nile, meet and uh, flow mm. down together towards uh, the sea. And they're called Blue and White Niles for, for a reason, and it's to do with the sediment that they carry. And sometimes, according to the, the flow of water and time of year, but this particular time, um, there was an absolute line where they joined, where blue became white as they, as they merged together. And it was a straight line of water where, where the different sedimented wind rivers um, hmm. joined up. And it came in, it, it, I can't quite describe it, except that it was the most amazing sight. Um, I didn't know there were two Niles. No, do they, is the main, the River Nile, is that after they join? Yes, I guess before they're called the Blue Nile and the White Nile. um, And they rise in different parts of Africa and join in Sudan at Khartoum. Yeah. Mm. Turns out the Um, Nile is a light blue. (laughs) 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 Thank you, fans. So anyway, I I arrived at Khartoum uh, with the instruction to set up a refugee programme. And it was, I mean, joking aside, it it was an absolute crisis because people were pouring across from Eritrea into uh, on the eastern um, border with Sudan. What was interesting was because there was a big need, a lot of agencies were flying in like me, you know, to come and look for a project. So there's almost a little bit of competition about who could land the, a deal with the United Nations or get funding for this project or that project. And it was very interesting because um, each agency had its own particular focus. Um, ours was was children really predominantly mothers and children um but not exclusively so but um I mean, as a matter of interest um help the aged for example were there and their focus was older people and save the children fund were there and their focus was younger people and it worked it turned out that uh, when this all the um, projects were being carved up the two of them went off and had a meeting and they decided to use talking to their executive committees, that an aged person, you could go down as low as 20 years <laughs> old. And Save the Children Fund said, well, I think we can go as high as 20 for a child, so we can work together in these camps and do everything. Do everything, so. yeah. I don't know how I feel about being, being 30 <laughs> and being with help the aged. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should feel very good, says the 62-year-old. Um but anyway, it, I mean, just as, there's a sort of an edge of discomfort about this whole aid circuit in a way, because what you're there for is to try and alleviate people's needs. But the barriers to that and the sort of um, process to doing that wasn't always easy. And uh, there, were, there was a particular group of refugees at Wad Cowley, it was called, um, 25,000 people, which I went to visit. And um, they were like just 25,000 people just walked probably 150, 200 kilometres um, in the dry season. And they were camped down around what was best be described as a puddle, really. It was a, 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 quite a large body of water, but it was muddy. Um, and there was nothing else there apart from a, a Coca-Cola stand, would you believe? Um, somebody had taking the initiative to go and put up a a coke stand. And it was one of those most surreal images 
that I've sort of carried with me to this day of um, of a Coke stand and nothing else and people needing everything. And uh, I thought mm. then if you could get Coca-Cola to organise the logistics of refugee camps, you'd probably be home and dry because somehow they'd managed to do that on day one uh, mm. for their own product. But, I mean, the interesting thing was I very rapidly realised and learned from other people that um, when you're planning a, a services for a refugee camp, you, you have to think of building a city, really. It, it's not, or certainly a very large town. Uh, it, you can't really think of, of a water supply for a family. You've got to think much bigger than that because very quickly you're going to... And, and as happened here, if you've got 25,000 people, it's not long before there's 30, 40, 50,000 um, because the, the problem hasn't gone away. And so uh, rather sort of rapidly learning on my feet, I went to all sorts of meetings um, to find out how we could best help. And uh, it turned out that the next group of refugees were coming across a bit further north, um, but still in the eastern region of Sudan. And so I said I wanted to head off there. Now... This was quite a journey because um, to get to this particular town that was called Kash, or if I try and do the Arabic um, pronunciation, it's Khashmel Gerba, um, or we used to call it Gerba, in fact. But um, to get there, you'd, you'd drive south for four hours on a tarmac road. You'd drive um, east for another two and a half hours, four hours, and then north for another three or four hours. So you ended up sort of due east of where you'd been. Hmm. Um, and in all, the journey to that town used to take about 12 hours, I think. Um, and we had, had ordered... The, the only thing we'd done, we'd, somebody had given us £25,000 and we'd spent it all on a Land Rover, which had been flown out. So we had a Land Rover. But uh, it turned out in those days that, that a Land Rover is really, really good at getting out of sand, but it's really kind of hot and uncomfortable on a long journey when when the the temperature is about 40 degrees mm. so it was quite a punishing journey anyway i'm telling you all of that because to give the impression it was quite an arduous journey and uh i went up there not in the land rover because that hadn't quite flown in yet but with i got a lift um to to meet the um the representative up there about these uh, new arrivals and when I arrived there, I went straight to the office of the UN United Nations, only to be told that the chap had left that morning to go back down to Khartoum. Oh, <laughs> so no. I'd, pa- I'd passed him on the road. On the road. So, um, so that wasn't great. But uh, And there was also apparently no buses for the next three days. So I decided to hitchhike my way back down to, to Khartoum. I did that and I got I got most of the way on one lift. And that lift was on a what they used to call a souk truck. A souk is a, a market, and the, the souk trucks were the trucks that carried everything to the market. And it was sort of a tall-sided thing, filled with sacks of maize and um, lots of things on top. And uh, the space was on top of the sacks, in the sun, um, on okay. this road. And unfortunately, I got some sun, a lot of sun cream, but it was absolutely blisteringly hot. And I rolled around on the back of that truck. Um, and after it, I thought, I wonder how fast this is going. And they have, surprisingly enough, all along that road, they had kilometre marks and posts. 
And so with my very new watch, um, oh. I, uh, I started timing the dis- the, how long it took before... Not much else to do. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. And, and then I amused myself by converting it into miles per hour. Once I worked out in kilometres per hour, I converted it into miles per hour. And I discovered we were going pretty slowly, really. And the 12-hour journey was definitely going to take 24 hours, um, if not longer. And that's what it took. An absolutely perishingly hot journey that, um, uh, that took took absolutely ages and uh i thought for half a minute you were going to say the opposite and it turned out you were driving incredibly fast a bit like <laughs> you know that tintin cartoon where it's the two people in a car driving along in the desert and they're looking at each other and one's going come on we need to go faster or something and he says i'm going to get out and walk and he gets he gets out the car because he thinks they're not moving and then it's because all all of the surroundings are just the same in every direction <laughs> there's no um, reference and point. then they yeah and then they get out and then they're just four miles behind because they're going a million miles an hour it's pretty much exactly what you well for anyone who knows that reference they'll love it i know you two are both <laughs> blank facing me right now but it was quite really a good. niche reference <laughs> but very appropriate yeah nice but on that on that journey, I mean, most of it was absolutely like you described, flat, referenceless, um, and uh, just I think on the journey there were probably three hills that stuck up out of the sand, like sort of teeth almost, and you know you, you'd see it in the distance, and then you'd drive for fifty minutes, and then it would go past, and then it would disappear, into the, and then eventually see the next one. So it sort of helped pass the time, and mm. then not on this trip, but on another trip. Um, we were absolutely astonished to discover leaving Khartoum um, after that th- there was a white line down the middle of the road, which had never been before. And um, yeah, it was sort of a dotted white line, but it was sort of like it had been painted by hand because the the dots weren't in a straight li- line. Some of them were off at a slight angle, but, um, you know, it did the job perfectly. But it, it was anyway, we were sort of jokingly said we'll we'll come across a chat with a paintbrush eventually and eventually we did <laughs> and we, we got to we got to the end of the white line and there was a chap with a big pot sitting under a bush and it was, it was just so funny it was just so funny to think with that any transport was... must be must have done no he was just on his own with the pot i mean I, I guess there was that's what he probably finished his work for the day and was waiting for somebody to come pick it up um and i guess the instruction was drive to the end of the white line and pick up the guy who's sitting there and <laughs> But um, if anyone ever listening to this ever thinks they've got a tough job, then boy, that was mm. a tough job. Yeah, I would say. And I, I guess I don't know what you do if you run out of paint. Or if somebody drives along and runs over your nice line, and or maybe it dries straight away because it's so dry. It, but yes, there were no, there were some tire marks that where it had been crossed over and you mm. know sort of run off a bit, which was which was a shame. That would really cheese me off. That probably stopped me from doing that job. I think. So the the upshot of that was uh, I got back to Khartoum and I met with those representatives who were supposed to be out um, twelve hours away or twenty four hours away depending on your transport, and um, we were we were allocated the mother and child healthcare um, in one of three new camps uh, to be created in this in this this town of Kashmir Gerba, and uh, that became my sort of project to manage um for the next few years really i was there in sudan just for i think a few weeks maybe two or three perhaps a bit longer can't quite remember but of course we had a wedding to plan and all sorts of things to get on with back in the uk so uh other people came to take over there was a chap called ken a fellow called brian another fellow called john and these were all a motley bunch of people like me who happened to be available were willing to go and were able to sort of just just get on with stuff 
Um, but one of the most entertaining of those was a was a chap called Dr. Alan Fordry. Now, he, God rest his soul, he's died quite a long time ago because um, this is 1984 and he was in his mid to late 70s then. And he was a retired... Uh, I, I know he wouldn't mind me saying this. In fact, he would be delighted for me to call him eccentric. <laughs> and, um, I mean, it's a great tribute to the man that he and his wife Hazel up sticks and went out to Khartoum to, to launch this project, really, so that when I left, there was somebody somebody there. Um, but but Alan was, was remarkable in many ways. And, I mean, some people listening will know what I mean if I describe a treasury tag. But I don't think you will. But a treasury yeah. tag is... Um, it's what they used to use in the Treasury, um, in the civil service in the United Kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> just, just guessing. <laughs> well, let me describe it to you because it's very exciting. Yeah. This it is a a short length of usually green string, about an inch long, I'd say, with silver bits on either side. Yes, I oh. know it. Wow, how do you know it? And what do you use them for? Oh, you hold bits of paper together with them. Oh, that's so so cool! Oh, but, but wait, I feel like I've just suddenly had a flashback to like primary school. You mean like a a toggle? The, they're like tea pieces the, on the end of the string um, that you you have a hole in the paper and you push one um, mm. metal bar through and they sit either side and hold the. Yeah, I'm so delighted you know that. It's an early day like folder. <laughs> early day folder, <laughs> <laughs> only for use in the morning. Folders of the afternoon. I actually think I I know them from, um, well, I did a bit of work experience at mum's work filing some papers and I feel like oh. they were in abundance there. Could well have been. Um, anyway, D- Alan Forger was a great fan of treasury tanks and he didn't have a suitcase with a stapler and a hole punch and a pencils and like me. He just had treasury tags, but it seemed to serve him pretty well. <laughs> but he was a fluent Arabic speaker and one time... We were in the Land Rover, which had now arrived, and um, he had to go and... Uh, I think he stopped off to ask the way. That's right. And he disappeared down this corridor um, to the side of the street, and I was in the Land Rover. And he was gone a very, very long time. And we thought... Well, anyway, eventually he came back, sort of nursing his arm, and he'd been bitten by a dog in the meantime. Oh, yikes. Um, which is not something you want to be happen in the Sudan really because rabies is endemic there um but he was not he was didn't bat an eyelid at this I mean he was a very nasty wound but uh he'd said to me um the important thing is to wash it out with soap and water and that's what he'd been doing for the last sort of 15-20 minutes to make sure to get all mm. anyway that they the, the the I think the strategy then was to observe the dog and make sure the dog doesn't die in the next few days and um, that's what he did and so he didn't have rabies and all was well. Mm. But one of the unexpected things and the other funny thing about him uh, is that he we had some time time to put our passports in to get various permits renewed to the government and he put his passport in for a, for a visa. And it never came back. And um, he, he, he kept going back and they said, no, no, we, we, it isn't finished. Eventually he said, well, what's the problem? And then they eventually they admitted they'd lost his passport. <laughs> so, but he, he, he didn't accept that as an answer. So he was in the, in the office with a counter and the sort of back offices behind. And he said, do you mind if I come and have a look? And he, he sort of vaulted over the, over the counter 
and went round behind to have a look. And he found his passport and it was under the leg of the table to stop it rocking because somebody <gasps> had got annoyed with it and they'd taken uh-huh. the nearest passport and put it under the, no. under the foot of the table. <laughs> that is amazing. So uh, that was quite funny. So I mentioned Sudan Airways and I'll finish with a couple few stories about Sudan Airways because uh, I love that airline to bits. It's been banned in Europe at the moment, but uh, it's a very, it was a very good friend to me. Um, and uh, for my very first flight, I discovered that the crew on board were just sort of not cut out of the same mould as normal air stewards and stewardesses and captains and co-pilots. They were much more humanity about them, shall we say, which is not to diss the rest of the airline staffing world, but they were just rather special. And um, quite early on, I got around to asking whether it would be possible to sit in the cockpit for a landing. And um, this was obviously well pre-9-11 and um, security was... You know, I don't think you're allowed in cockpits now um, uh, at all. But um, anyway, when I the first time I asked this, the lead steward went to ask the captain, and the captain said, "Sure, yeah, no problem." <laughs> so um, I remember landing at Khartoum Airport, and it was sort of it was I think the flight arrived around two in the morning, and it was pitch black, stars as bright as diamonds in the sky. Um, and the moon just sort of setting on the horizon and coming in over the Nile with the, with the reflection of the moon in the Nile um, and landing in, in the airport was was just magical. And I thought that experience in an aeroplane is never going to be beaten. But it was. But. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was again on Sudan Airways and this time going the other direction, uh, back to London. And uh, I'd asked sort of halfway through the flight. I, I discovered that if you ask at the beginning, they forget. So uh, the mm. thing is to ask a bit later on. And um, uh, she asked... I love Captain, that you've asked enough times to have got this research. And... <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, I was, was a... <laughs> Chancer. And so this, this time, um, we'd started our descent into London's Heathrow Airport. And, um, you know, the, I think the flaps were already starting to come on. In other words, we're sort of pretty much more or less on final approach. And I thought, oh, well, you know, it would have been so cool to do it in T-throw, but never mind. And then um, the lady came up and she said, um, the captain's busy, but he's but as soon as he's finished what he's doing, you can go into the cockpit, see. So, uh, so then I waited a bit longer. And then I was rushed into the cockpit, door shut behind me, and I sat in the jump seat. And, and there, I, I mean, my jaw just dropped open because um, we were in a holding pattern, and we were sort of circling above, uh, which is a huge, you know, it goes over most of London, I think. It's, it's, it's not like it's just circling over the airport. It's a big, mm. it's a big circuit. Um, but then again, going the other direction, the moon had been setting into the Nile. This time, we were coming in from the east, because um, the runway at Heathrow goes east-west. And we were flying just into the setting sun, which was just on the horizon. And there was sort of amazing cloud formations with pinks and blues and rainbow hues. And then uh, either side of me um, were were other planes that were either going into land or taking off or on a holding pattern. And I was just thinking, I don't don't know how much money people would pay to to, to see what Mm. I'm looking at now. Mm. But a lot of money, (laughs) an awful lot of money. That sounds amazing. That sounds so um, good. 
Anyway, then eventually they said, uh, you know, you're cleared to land and we came in. And the, the interesting thing there was as we touched down, and this was new to me then, but not surprised to me now, um, neither pilot was touching anything as we touched down. The plane just landed itself. There were, there mm. weren't, the hands weren't on the controls at all. So, so in one sense, you could say you, landed, you the landed the plane just as much as the pilot landed the plane. Uh, well, I did. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Mm. I couldn't have done it without me, he said afterwards. So. <laughs> <laughs> Can we have a moment of appreciation for, for pinks, pinks and, and blues, blues and, and rainbow, rainbow hues? hues. <laughs> so good. <It's> too nice. <laughs> too nice. I saw you smirk when he said that, and I, was, I did the same, and I was like, I know what I'm calling this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Title of the bag. It's <laughs> <laughs> so easy. <laughs> and the, the the very last time was on another trip. Again, this was um, on a Sudan Airways flight from Asmara in Eritrea back to Sudan, just after Eritrea had won its independence from Ethiopia after 30 years of fighting, which we'll talk about another in another episode. But I flew back. It's a very short flight. It's about, um, I don't know, 40 minutes or something. And... Uh, and and that was a really old um, Boeing seven three seven, and just looking at it, you could tell it was old. Um, and as I got it up again, I made the request, and I was I was shown straight into the cockpit for the takeoff and the landing. I was there for the whole flight, which was very cool. Um, but the, <laughs> the the as soon as we'd taken off, the co-pilot fell asleep and put his head against the thing and, and he was asleep for most of the flight. Um, and the, the captain was talking to me, and I said, oh is he all right you know because i thought i don't want the captain having a heart attack or something because <laughs> then, then i'm gonna have to land the flame and but um he said oh yes he said he, he just had a hard night last night i don't know what that means because <laughs> it's an alcohol-free country sudan so um anyway he was he slept for was he on a was he on a long flight from somewhere else overnight could have been that's the innocent brain version who knows um anyway uh when he did wake up the captain set him to making a list of the things that weren't working in the on the on the, on the aircraft, and he spent oh. the rest of the rest of the um, the rest of the flight listing all the things that weren't working. So uh, that so was marginally worrying. Every landing that you walk away from is a great one, as far as I'm concerned, and here I am today. So anyway, you can see why I've got a, a fond a fond feeling for for Sudan Airways. Yeah. Oh, and then one time we landed at Nice because they were running out of fuel. They, they hadn't quite calculated the fuel right. So the unexpected landing in Nice, uh, which is, itself is a dramatic landing. Anyone who's done that, you come in right over the sea. You think you're landing on the sea. And then the, the um, this is in France, by the way. And then the, the runway sticks out into the sea and you land. But um, we, we were there for a very long time while they tried to work out how to pay for the fuel that they needed to take us on to, to Heathrow. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were almost there, we were very nearly there, but not quite. And um, so after about three hours, the, the passengers got a bit grumpy and started sort of complaining. And then eventually a representative was, a, was appointed and to go and make our case because we hadn't been given any water or any sandwich. Anyway, they eventually dished out some water and some sandwiches. And uh, the sandwiches were absolutely stank. They were, st- Ooh, oh, no. they were really rank um, smell to them. And uh, so there was uh, another representative went on again and said, uh, these sandwiches smell bad. And the, the, the steward came on the, on, the, um, on the intercom and he said, ladies and gentlemen, he said, there has been a complaint about the food. He said, um, I just want to assure you, oh, about the smell of the food. He said, I just want to assure you 
the food itself is good, it is only the smell that is bad. <laughs> anyway, oh, that makes I'm, me feel I, so much better. Well, I, I mean, some people might think I'm trying to sort of um, diss Sudan Airways with them. not a bit of it. I just found them very quirky and very entertaining and gave me some experiences that I would never have had anywhere else. So... Uh, and I think probably that's about enough for this episode, really. But um, it's a sort of introduction to Sudan, which was part of my life for a, a, probably a decade or more after that. Mm. And I hope you've enjoyed that flavour. Definitely, yeah. I think the the immediate image you painted of dusty, beaten-up cars, people wandering around in white robes, just sounds... It's a very vivid image, and it feels very post-apocalyptic compared to like what you see in here in edinburgh it's like yeah yeah, i don't know but there was also a sort of a romance about it i can't quite explain it but Mm. i'm I'm sure i've said this before but my heart always beats faster when i land in africa it's just something there's something very exciting about that kind of difference if you know what i mean Mm. and the older i get the more i realize that um we we are born into a kind of a a background, a life, uh, we've got our lived experience, and it's a tiny part of the world's kind of corporate global experience. But I've only just realised that in the relatively recent years, that uh, that a lot of the world isn't like that and isn't necessarily better or worse. It's just different. Mm. Mm. That's my little philosophy lesson for the day. It's, 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 yeah, very a good one to end on. You could say that... Our experience is the pink, but in the whole world, there are pinks and blues and rainbow hues. That's cool. I, can't I like I it. Said that. You could say that. I wrote it in my notebook. It's so good. Anyway, if you go to podclarks.com, you can get a pin badge that says pinks and blues and rainbow hues. You can get a t shirt. You can't really. I'm sorry, am I? I mean, pinks and blues and rainbow hues is like the trans flag and the pride flag. And I just, I love the image of it. It's so good. Mm. Well, who knows what can come out of my mouth when I don't plan it. What was that? Your your mouth? Your mouth. (laughs) (laughs) When you don't plan it, your mouth can say anything. All I mean is it's so much better than when I do plan it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, brilliant. Thank you very much. That was another excellent um, storytelling sesh. I've had a lovely time. Sames. Well, you know what to do. Listen to us on all of the available platforms that, pod, that the podcasts uh, happen on. Stop and listening to this episode and listen to listen us on to another all platform. All of the other ones. Uh, follow us. We are at the podcasts on all the social media and drop us a rating and tell us how good you think we are. Give us uh, give us some feedback. Thanks, Dee. It's uh, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from him, Jim. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.